Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week is another big one for me. We get to hear from Squeeze drummer Gilson Lavis. Now, Squeeze is one of my favorite bands. I've loved them for 30 years. They are a beloved band. Who doesn't love Squeeze, right? Well, I've always thought Gilson was especially interesting because he looks like such a dapper gentleman. And yet he's in an alternative rock band. And you find out from this conversation, he really is a dapper gentleman. He's so British. I loved it. You also get an idea from this, sort of the, the dynamic within the personalities of that band. You, you know, we all want our favorite bands to get back together like the old days, but they don't. And one of the reasons, I think the main reason for that this time around, is that Jules Holland is basically a national treasure in Great Britain. And he doesn't need Squeeze. And Gilson, who's been out of Squeeze for about 25 years, works for Jules. And in fact, he's in Jules's Rhythm and Blues Orchestra. So that's really why I think things are the way they are now. Gilson also is sort of starting a, a really fascinating second career right now as well as a sketch artist. In fact, he's going to have his first show at a New York gallery called Salomon Arts on the 14th of September. Can you believe that? The drummer for Squeeze is now an artist and he's going to be selling his work. That's amazing. This is a really in-depth conversation. I think if you're a Squeeze fan especially, you're going to appreciate this. Hopefully you will if you're not, either way, but a Squeeze fans are going to love this. There have been a lot of ups and downs with Gilson. There's been poor times, there have been good times. He's been an alcoholic at certain points, but he's been clean for a long time. He even drove a cab in between stints as Squeeze's drummer. Can you, can you imagine the drummer of Squeeze being your cab driver? I can't imagine that. I love him very much. And in fact, you know, there's so many great Squeeze songs we could kick this off with. I wanted to start with probably my favorite Squeeze song. It's called Footprints. And it's on the Babylon and On album from 1987. And I think I especially like this song because I love his playing on this song. There's a line in this track. It was a single, but not a huge one. That I have said to myself every year for 30 years. The summer is over. I can count the cost. Footprints on the beaches are now footprints in the frost. It never goes from summer to fall to winter without me thinking about that line. I love that line. Anyway, Gilson called me from his favorite chair in his home in Lincolnshire, England. First and foremost, I want to ask you about the song Footprints, because that yeah. is my favorite squeeze song. And I know that, that that was a single, but it wasn't you know a gigantic hit or anything, but Part of the magic of that song is you, and you're part of the magic in a lot of songs, but that one in particular has such a specific drum roll pattern. I was curious if you had any memories or stories relating to the recording of that particular song. Well, uh, what, not particularly that one, although I do remember playing it, but uh, what I can sort of talk about is, is um, Glenn, who wrote most of the music, as you know, for Squeeze, mm -hmm. Glenn used to write in a very specific rhythm, a uh, very oh. sort of guitar-orientated, sort of uh, four-by-four-type sort of square rhythm. And uh, everything that he brought into the band to work on had a very similar sort of feel going on. Mm. And, and what I tried to do, my, my part in the, in the fiasco, was to, uh, was to try and find new and hopefully interesting ways of, of playing drum patterns that would fit in with that mm. sort of groove, you know, whether, yeah. you know, and, and um, 
and sometimes they worked really well, and sometimes they didn't. I think the I think the uh, the footprints rhythm is is quite an interesting rhythm. I remember playing it yeah. um, uh, across the kit, and I remember using two hi hats on it uh, mm. so that I could. If you listen in stereo, you'll see there's a hi hat sort of they're slightly panned left and right. There are two hi hats, okay. which I actually physically played. I mean, I did play oh, that. Interesting. I, I I had two hats set up on the kit. And it can sometimes those sort of drum feels that are a sort of uh, sort of flammy type five stroke rolly things around the kit can sound rather sort of lumpy. That was a a similar sort of groove in our very first record we recorded. I think it was called UK Squeeze in in it America. Was. But, but there was yeah. a muscle man on the front cover. Yeah. Well, on that record, there's a song called The Call. And, and that has a rather similar sort of approach to 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 the groove, you know. But it, hopefully, it was a lot more tuneful. But they can sound okay. a bit lumpy if you get them wrong, you know. Oh, so, I bet. Uh, but it's, it's not you. And and I gotta say, Keith uh, Wilkinson, the the bass player, the the rhythm section on Footprints specifically is just magical. And and I relate it back to you guys. Not that I mean everybody's playing a great part, but. You're just so special in that song, and I was oh, curious thank you. Yeah, it's very, what you thought about it. Sure. You're a very kind man. I'm warming to you already. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you like me by the time we're done. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, that's great. If you keep now, striking my ego like that, I'm sure you can't fail. Well, there's anyway. going to be a lot of that. Just get ready. There's going to be a lot of it. Um, so oh, okay. I am originally from Salt Lake City, Utah, and if I remember correctly, the video for Footprints, I think, was filmed in Park City. Do you know what I – do you remember this? I do remember, yeah, we're up in the mountains there. Yeah, Yeah. The why snow, were you there? Yeah. What were you doing? I don't know. It was probably the producer oh. was on a bit of a, a bit of a beano, I suppose. I've no idea. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know if it still works like that in the business, but what they used to do, they used to sort of put put forward ideas for a production of a of a music video. And, that, and these were the early days of, yeah. of, uh, of, of music videos. So, you know, people thought it was sure. the magic bullet, you know. Uh, and so, you know, oh, you've got to have a great video, you've got to have a great video. And it was a real sort of feeding frenzy for people that come up with ideas. I know, let's take let's take the boys out to uh, Salt Lake City and uh -huh. film them in the snow. <laughs> and if I remember, let's make Glenn's eyes really bizarre by making them really deep blue, you know, all that sort of... It's all bonkers, really, you know. It's just, yeah, of course. You know, it's just right. trying to... It's <laughs> Trying to sell fish to an Eskimo, you know. It's sure, sure. But they've got to come up with new ideas. I've no uh, idea. I mean, I wasn't party to the discussion. I just okay. went where I was told, you know. I sure, was, uh, of course. Out there, so, okay. You know. I was just curious. 
Yeah, not a not a year has gone by in the last 30 that I haven't thought of the words footprints on the beaches are now footprints in the frost. Every time summer ends and it turns to win, it turns to fall and winter, I think of that lyric and uh It's and a killer line, it. isn't it? It's a killer it line. Is. I mean, he I is a he is a magician with 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 lyrics. Really There's no is. doubt about it. In fact, yeah. Chris is Chris is working with us at the moment. I don't know if you know, but I'm the drummer in in the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, Jules Holland I didn't and know the that. Rhythm and Blues. Yeah. And um, we we do pretty well. We play to, you know, quite a few thousand people and you know, we're quite successful Excellent. this side of the pond. And uh, and we have guest artists touring with us. Um all sorts of people, you know, we've had Solomon Burke and we've had oh, sure. the list the list is endless, you know, from Tom yeah. Jones and, and yet every year we have somebody somebody sort of new. And this summer tour, our guest artist is Chris Difford. No way. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So yeah. so in fact now when we when we go on stage, wherever it is, and we, we do a show, there's Jules on piano, there's me on drums, and there's Chris Difford doing vocals, and we do a couple of squeeze songs. So, in fact, there's more of the original squeeze on stage yeah. with Julian than there is on stage with squeeze, <laughs> which is really <laughs> odd. That is so true. That's so true. I, uh, I just finally saw squeeze, quote-unquote, a couple of years ago for the first time here. I live in Denver now, and it was I, it was so sad. So i got to tell you, I... I became a fan in 1987 when I was 14, and you talk about videos. The video for Hourglass is one of the greatest videos ever. I still believe that. Because I, um, my kids are little. They're nine, eight, four. Yeah. And since the time they were just babies, I've been playing them songs and showing them the videos that I thought were cool that I grew up on. And Hourglass has been something that we've all shared. Yeah. My daughter and, and my wife happened to be in New York City this weekend on, vac- on uh, vacation visiting for, uh, family. And I guess my daughter is going around telling everyone, my dad gets to interview the guy from Squeeze. And the thing that's interesting about that is my daughter is nine. And so there are millions of people who love you, including my nine-year-old daughter. So I just want you to know that the generations are, you know, it's being passed down. How oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you, you for your yeah. work. I appreciate Absolutely. it. No, I, no, I mean, it, it does sort of come home to roost sometimes. For instance, yeah. well, I was out in, um, on holiday with a family. Uh, we were out in Greece few years back, two or three years, I'm, it might have been longer, I'm, I'm bad on times now, I'm getting old, it's all, sure. it's all turning into a, a grey swirling mass really, but <laughs> it, was, it was a few years ago, and we were out in Greece, and, and um, a lovely time out there, beautiful sunshine, and Mediterranean uh-huh. sun, you know, 
And we went on this this sort of day trip outing to sort of a, a traditional Greek sort of wedding type thing that was going on, you know, that, that uh-huh. you do. You know, you have these day trips out, you know. And we went out, went on this. And I was uh, and in this, and I was sitting next to an American chap, and we just got chatting. And he and he asked me what I did, and I said, "Oh, I'm a, I'm a drummer, you know." And uh, mm-hmm. oh, really? Who you who you play for? Oh, Jules Holland. Blank, you know, nothing. Uh-huh. Uh, he said, "Oh, but I I used to be the drummer in a band called Squeeze," and his eyes lit up. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, my God, do you, no, not really. You're a legend. <laughs> oh my word. And it and it, it still comes as a bit of a shock, you know that, yeah. um, you know that all these thousands of oh, people in America st- still still yeah. love Squeeze, you know it's fantastic, oh, boy. really. You're a legend in my mind, and I came like I said, I, <laughs> I'm I, a legend in are. my mind, which is even worrying, <laughs> more worrying. <laughs> you have to be a legend in somebody's mind. No, 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 so, I'm not um, at all, mate. I'm just a working Joe drummer, mate. I tell you. I anyway. Know. Um, but I, uh, so I got turned on to squeeze when I was 14 in 1987 and my eye in these videos was always going to you because you looked so dapper and I'm still, you still do. And I'm trying to think, has, has Gilson Levis ever just worn like, uh, jeans and a t-shirt or like cargo <laughs> shorts or something? Because every time I see you, you remind me a lot of the actor James Fox. Oh, aren't you kind? Well, shall I tell you, there's a bit of a story to this. My dad, God bless him, he died many years ago, and he was truly a wonderful man, a lovely, lovely, lovely man. I still miss him to this day. And He died when I was quite young, about 30, and he passed away. Um, he was about 66 or something like that, and far too early. Yeah. But my dad worked as a manager in a, uh, in a, a building supply merchants, and he was an area manager. And he used to wear a suit to work every day. And mm-hmm. he used to take pride in his appearance, polish his shoes, wear a suit, go to work, face the front, you know, look, look yeah. proper, look, look right, you know. That sort of upbringing was sort of taught me, and that's how I sort of have been in, in my life. There mm-hmm. have been periods when I've been a bit more slack. I'll talk about that in a bit. Sure. Like, but, okay. um, but I've always had that sort of attitude. And also... When I started, really, uh, playing the drums uh, for a living, I was um, working with all sorts of people from from uh, Dolly Parton, uh, playing yeah. at the country music festivals over here, you know, and uh, Wembley Country Music Festival and Skeeter Davis and Tony Wynette and, and all these yeah. people. And they were all very smart, sort of looking, dressy-type people. And I and I also worked in the cabaret circuit for quite a while, playing for mm-hmm. cabaret artists as a pickup drummer, and oh, you know the list is endless. I did sure. hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of people I played drums for, and and it was part of the gig to turn up looking smart. Well, uh-huh. then all of a sudden, I, you know, I find myself in a South London sort of new wave stroke uh-huh. punk band, and they're all sort of, you know, <laughs> wearing scratchy old clothes and. and uh-huh. <laughs> Like, look like they've been run over by a motorcycle, you know. Right. But, I, but I, I'm used to sort of dressing up to go on stage and, and looking smart and, and sort of cleaning my teeth and polishing my shoes. And yeah. I never, and I never lost that. It's still with me now. Wow. But there yeah. was, there, but there was a period. I mean, when I was, because I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I haven't drunk for decades now. But, but there was a period, especially at the end of my drinking, when it got quite hard work to take care of your physical appearance you know yeah it was, it was pretty hard work to get out of bed in the morning let alone <laughs> i believe it let yeah, alone believe shine it. your shoes you know so um yeah 
though there have been some rather sort of fallow periods when I maybe could have made more of an effort, but in the main, I still do. I still, okay. I still, you yeah. know, working working with the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra. I still go on stage oh, with a jacket it. and a and a smart shirt and you know yeah. comb me hair and look look look. <laughs> I think you're in trouble as a muse, as an as a performer. If the audience is looking smarter than the artist, I think there's something wrong. I think there's something wrong there somewhere, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you, I mean, again, this is why I think my eye was always drawn to you in the videos and in the band photos and stuff like that, because, you know, as you were saying, you you joined this new wave punk band in the late seventies that, in an era where, you know, there's people gobbing on the stage and throwing oh, urine. Oh, and, and here's you looking so, you know, sophisticated. Was it a an uncomfortable fit being in that environment, or were you just a musician and you grew up at those same times and well, this is life? It, well, I, I think it was, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if it was uncomfortable fit. I mean, from the word go, really, I saw there was something special going on there, you know. I mean, yeah. When I when I heard Chris and Glenn's songs, they were just they sort of blew me away, really. I mean, yeah. because they were just so magical. So I don't think yeah. I was ever uncomfortable being in Squeeze. But what I suppose it, you know, I had to. For instance, we did one of our first, not the first, but one of one of the first shows we did was at um, uh, Ronnie Scott's uh, in London, which is a, a jazz mm. venue. But they also have a rock venue upstairs. And, yeah. we, and we did that as a, you know, in our early formative years as a, as a gigging band. And I remember turning up to, we had a bit of a rehearsal in the afternoon, and everybody just sort of hung about to go on stage. But I went out to my car, put on my my jacket, came back up with a hairdryer and blew dry, <laughs> blew, blew dry my hair, and sort of did all this sort of stuff. And and I looked at, and the rest of the band were looking at me as I was a nutcase, and I thought. Hang on, I, I think I need to change my approach a bit. I need to right. turn it turn it down from ten right. down to about seven, you know. Right, so, right. So I did, oh, you know. I, I I stopped the blow drying and I stopped all that yeah. stuff, but I, but I never quite gave up the jackets and the smart shirt. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. You really seemed like a man out of time. In that, oh, well, in that I don't era. Know. well, probably. I think I've always just been. I've, I've always been incredibly comfortable on stage. I mean, I, you know. Right. In, in some ways, um, I mean, obviously there was a period when I was a drunk that it was quite hard work. Sure. It's being a practicing okay. alcoholic is a pretty hard, hard yeah. road to hoe. You know, it's yeah. it's it's like this balancing act: drinking enough to have the courage to go on stage, but not drinking so sure. much that you, that you make a fool of yourself. And exactly, and the more you, the more I drank, or the longer it went on, the harder it was to find that balancing oh, point. Okay. You know. Yeah, but uh, I thankfully, I've, I haven't been in that place for many, many years now. I don't good, time. good for you. Anyway, anyway no, it's all right, mate. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's black or white. You know, do you want yeah, to live or do you yeah. want to die? You know, there's yeah, no, no kidding. There's no, you know, there's no, I don't deserve any congratulations. I, I, I deserve, what I have is a lot of gratitude for people that have helped me. And, and Well, and, good. Uh, well, you made the right you know. choice and you stuck to it. That takes well, abs- yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, you know, it's... Um, <clears throat> You know, it's not a solo yeah. effort. You know, there are a lot of people around me, sure. and, I, and I'm privileged to help a lot of people too now. You know, discover good. there is a solution. But anyway, I'm not going to go there. But okay, um, well, no, so, that's um, good. But um, okay, yeah. 
So, uh, so the, the, the word transit, it was tricky, but I've always been really comfortable on stage. I've always felt, you know, quite at home. I've always, you know, enjoyed, uh-huh. I don't know, I don't know about being looked at. I've never been, you know, I don't yeah. really, I've, I don't really seek adulation. I've never, never been sort of hooked on the, on the applause or hooked on the, on the glory or the glamour, and there is sure. a great deal in the music business. Some of there is some, but not as much as people think. But right, um, right. But what, what I've always enjoyed is sort of playing music and doing it as well as I can. If you see yeah, what I mean. yeah. Every well, night I try. Yeah, well, you know, it's part of the gig, really. Every night I try and play a bit better than I did last night. Sure. You know, and that's yeah, and that's really you know how the, the secret, if there is a secret, that's really the way I work. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah understood. Okay, so you mentioned the first album, which I've always been curious about. It comes out, I think, in 78, and produced by John Cale, who, uh, you know, Velvet Underground legend. I don't know, were you a Velvet Underground fan? You don't strike me as one, but maybe you were. I don't know. Uh, well, no, I wasn't particularly. I mean, I didn't even know who John Cale was. You know, I was, uh, you <laughs> know, I, I didn't. I really didn't. You know, I, <laughs> okay. I, I was a much more mainstream type yeah. you know, player, you know, working with, mainstream artists and you know and um and so i i had to learn all this stuff you know but yeah um, but it, it was an eye-opener you know after yeah, i believe it after you know I, I, I recorded with quite a few artists before squeeze some of them i'm sure you never heard of but they were quite mm-hmm. big in great britain people like the new seekers yeah. and and stuff like that they were oh, country sure. country-based sort of pop rock type acts you know and yeah. so when this then this chap turned up, you know John Cale, and was all sort of really left field and wacky ideas, and you know uh-huh. really a, a, a tortured genius, really best describes uh-huh. John. You know, I mean, a fantastic yeah. man. I had to learn, but what a wonderful place to be because I was a blank canvas. You know, he yeah. he truly impressed me. You know, he Good. did some, really. His, oh man, some of the stuff he did. When we first started to play, I would. By the time Squeeze started working uh, as a as a performing band, I'd already been a pro drummer for ten years or something. And I'd oh, and I played and I played all sorts of music. I mean, I played big band. I played jazz. I played funk. Uh-huh. I played rock. I played heavy rock. I played, uh, you know, just every style of music I, I had. You know, because I was a gigging. Yeah. I was a gigging drummer, you know. You know, have a sure. checkbook, I'll turn up, mate. You know, that was right. That's, right. That, that was that was what I did for a living, you know. And I, anyway, I joined this band, uh, Squeeze, and of course I was quite a, an accomplished drummer, uh, mm-hmm. especially compared to a lot of the drummers that were in new wave bands at the time. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not criticising how they played. That is the last thing I'm doing because there right. is a there is a real essence. Oh, and verve and passion in that naivety of mm-hmm. performance that it's easy to lose. And, and yeah. those early, early sort of new wave punk drummers had so much passion and so much sort of drive and naivety that it's very right. hard to recreate that when you've been around the business for 20 years. You know, you think, well, yeah, I, well, I can't I do that. It. You know, yeah. I'm all a bit slick and stylish now. I can't play like that. You know, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So sure, I'm, not criti- I'm not criticizing them. But I, but in those early days of Squeeze, I was quite an accomplished musician. You know, I had, a, mm-hmm. I had quite a lot of drumming technique and 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 stagecraft, and I've been yeah. doing it for ten years. You know, and um, 
and John Carr was a bit taken aback. I think he was a bit surprised. So uh, one of the ways it didn't last, but one day he taped my my hands together with not hands together, but he taped two drumsticks in each of my hands and gaffer taped them in place so that really? I would sound so that I would sound more crude. He wanted really? me to sound yeah. You were too good. You were too slick. Uh, well I don't know too good's the right word. I was too slick but, for for it, yeah. you know. Well, so that's but, kind uh, of Oh go ahead. Well, I was it didn't last. It yeah, didn't last. I think this that that first album is kind of a it's not the best introduction into what squeeze would become i've always heard that it was sort of it wasn't the best uh maybe everyone didn't quite get along john kale had a very different vision for what he thought he was going to make of you guys than where you should have been it's not an album that reflects who squeeze is in fact i think i read somewhere this was years ago so i may be completely off but i think i read somewhere that he wanted to market you guys as like Five gay guys or something, and that's oh, why there was no, a I, I muscly guy I on mean, the cover. Oh, really? I thought I read that somewhere. Maybe. No, well, else. no. I mean, I, I think that was that was just us being sort of silly, you know, the, the whole oh, okay. sort of naked from from the waist up with a muscle man ah. in the front. I think yeah. I think that was that was just something that sort of grew. I don't, I don't think okay. there was any sort of homosexual or homoerotic oh, okay. going on there. But um, I thought I read that somewhere. Okay. <laughs> but. Uh, I think it's us taking the piss a bit, really. But anyway, probably. But well, what he did was actually what he did was was really, really vital, I think, to the growth of Squeeze because when when we started that album, Chris and Glenn's songs were remarkable, but mm-hmm. but they were love songs. They were songs about Moon in June and and, and yeah, sunshine and 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 surfing songs and sort of copying their take on on pop records that have been before but obviously they had this sort of slightly quirky edge to it that was very Chris and Glenn you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but what John Cowell did was he told Chris to stop writing about to stop writing love songs and write about other things and that's when the lock the key was turned in the lock that unlocked mm. Chris's imagination Got and it. that's when he started to write in the way that we all know and love now, which is this real okay. sort of picturesque storytelling. You know, the way he, he can take one second and turn it into a three-minute song, or he yeah. can take a lifetime, you know, of 60 years and turn that into a three-minute song. You know, this yeah. this this wonderful way he has with, with lyrics. And it was John Cale that spotted that and unlocked the door and said, you should stop writing love songs and write about life, you know. And then, you know, with, with Glenn, uh, Glenn was sort of writing poppy tunes and then he sort of pushed Glenn away from that and got him to be a bit more edgy with his with his yeah. songwriting. So I think, you know, Glenn was always pulling back towards writing poppy songs, but... But I, so he had a really sort of profound effect, I think, on Squeeze, on the growth yeah. of Squeeze. Okay. But I well, think it only really, I, yeah. But I think it only really took shape with the albums after the initial album, yeah. after the initial Squeeze album, okay. where okay. where John Cale's footprint, no pun intended, was pretty right. square and firm on the whole thing. It was really sort of edgy and and yeah. you know that sort of new wave meets New York sort of. Uh, Sure. punk that sort of edgy stuff but 
But of yeah, course, you guys are after, more sophisticated than that, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. And after afterwards, we, we you know, we sort of self-produced with with John Wood, who, who helped us produce the, the records. You know, we it yeah. became a lot more of a vehicle for our own specific talents and abilities. You know, Chris and Glenn songwriting, uh-huh. Jules's piano playing. Hopefully, my Hopefully, Absolutely and I, I say drum. this, my my created drum parts, yeah. like you know, they sort of grew from 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 that initial album. So yeah. Agreed. Okay. Well, good. Well, then that means it was a positive experience. I oh, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. It was, okay. Yeah. Good. Absolutely. Good. Chris and Chris and uh, Glenn are such singular artists and such a great team. Was did you feel as though there was much room for you to sort of submit your own ideas? At all, contribute. Were you contributing much? Uh, well, you well, well in the early like days. No, 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 no. In the early days, actually, uh, in the for the first three or four or even five years of Squeeze's lifetime, uh, in the early days, right up until I think um, after East Side Story, uh, I had a very uh, quite a, quite a strong role in the band. I used to arrange a lot of the songs. Or at oh, least I, I was the key arranger because I had so much sort of experience of, of working with different artists. And Chris and Glenn would, would be writing the songs, bring them in, and, and I'd sort of suggest a lot of the arrangements and, and, and stuff. But gradually as time went on and Chris and Glenn got more and more confident in their own abilities mm. and I suppose more strident about their compositions and wanting them the way they wanted them, that my um, my input was less and less required, and okay. so I would think by the end of my time with Squeeze, I, I was still left to to uh, arrange and 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 work out my own drum parts. Nobody told me mm. what to play or how to play, but okay. my, my influence on the rest of the band and the arrangement of the songs wasn't so um, uh, dominant. Really, it was much more. Okay. I was just. I was just dealing with my own parts, really, and trying to make okay. it work with the other parts. But um, no, in the early days, I was I was probably You're the right loudest there. voice, you know. So. Oh, interesting. Was there is there a song that you arranged or worked on that you're particularly proud of? Well, I think well, well, most of them really. But I think sure. one of the ones that I I really did arrange was a pulling muscles from Michelle. Really.
so yeah, creating. that was that was all that sort of you know all the pushes, stops, and stops yeah. and all the rest of it, you know. And then of course the uh, the the middle of Call for Cats is a drum break, you know, yeah. sort of, which was all a bit sort of new for a new wave song. And it wasn't like a drum solo, it was just like a drum, drum sort of, uh, uh, well, it, see, when you say drum solo, you think as fast and as loud as you can go for five minutes. Yeah, no. No, it wasn't that. It was like a, more like a, a sort of a, a new wave version of Take Five, where right, there's a sort, right. of, a sort of lyrical nice. sort of drum drum thing going on, you know. So. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's I had no idea. But now eventually... You and Jules eventually leave. Is there, I mean, is it as, is there like a Glenn and Chris camp and a Jules and Gilson camp? Or is it just that those two are sort of forging ahead in their own vision and, and it sort of leaves people in their wake? What's the dynamic of the band after a while? It was, as I said, I think, over, over time, um, Glenn got more um, controlling. I think he would... Mm. You know, if you've read anything or, or, or looked into Squeezer's history, you'll see he's, a, he's, um, he's admitted and, or at least owned up to the fact that he did get quite controlling mm. and quite dominant as a, yeah. a, 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 about how he wanted things and how he wanted things to sound and, and whatever. Uh, and I think Chris, uh, you know, being the, 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 the lyricist along with Glenn, it naturally made for us not a split, but a, a sort of um, a separation, and it did become Chris and Glenn, and then the rest of the musicians. You know, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It did. It did sort of separate into that into that fraction, and of course, what, what happened was it, it was sort of inevitable. Sooner or later, you know, they yeah. they they sort of got rid of us one by one. You know, I mean, it yeah. was, Harry was the first to go, and then. And then I think Julian left, and then they broke up the band completely, you know, um, yeah. which was very disappointing. But um, that was when we were just on the verge of breaking America. You know, we were, we were <laughs> headlining Madison Square Garden and doing all sorts. Oh, and surprisingly, we did all that without a hit record. We did all that with with sort of uh, live shows and college plays and, you know. Oh, really? College, college radio plays. There was no hit record. Uh, and we managed to get to Madison Square Garden, you know, and sell it out. For yeah. Nights. So, 
So that oh, was wow. quite a feat, you know, and it was a lot of work and a lot of effort went yeah. into that and a lot of miles and a lot of touring. But I wasn't very well at the time. That was when I I stopped drinking, actually, was, was after oh. the band broke up then. So I can understand why they'd had enough of me. I'd had enough, I'd had enough of me by then as well. Sure. So, um, Are you talking, because I think you guys broke up a couple times. Are you talking did, the early yeah. 80s breakup or the early 90s breakup? Well, well, both, really. I mean, the, okay. 80s, the 80s breakup came about because I think Chris and Glenn sort of wanted to, I think they were... It can get quite demanding to be yeah. in a in a band where you're responsible for the coming up with the songs and the, you're getting pressure yeah. from the record company to keep coming up with the songs. And we had toured, you know, relentlessly. We'd done uh, so many tours of America, you know, uh, fifteen. I, I I didn't count, but I mean, it was coast right. to coast, north to south. You know, uh, constant yeah. touring. And and uh, if we weren't in, touring in in uh, in America, we were touring in Europe. If we weren't touring in Europe, we were in Australia. If we weren't there, we were making a record. And then it was sure. And it was like just a, a, a constant pressure, you know. Yeah. And I think they saw light at the end of the tunnel. And that light was right. We're going to break up, squeeze, and go as Chris Difford and Glenn, or Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Difford as a duo. Yeah. And then they uh, did that solo album. But yeah, they did the solo album. I don't think it did as well as they hoped, no. uh, but and, and I that's when I got, got sober actually it was in that okay. year or, or eighteen months the layoff, and then yeah. after a couple of years, you know, we got back together. Uh, I was driving yeah. a minicab in South London actually at the time. I can't believe and, that. And yeah, absolutely, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I got a phone call from Glenn saying, "Do you want to come and do a show?" And I went along and did a show, and it sort of went well. Uh, and that was it, and we started again. You Crazy. Know, so, yeah. Crazy. So, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Bonkers, you know. So did, I think one of the rubs against Squeeze has been the songwriting and the production and the recording. The songs are so perfect, and yet, for whatever reason, it never quite broke out in the States like it should have. Not until Babylon and on. I mean, even Tempted, which is probably Squeeze's, I don't know, signature hit or biggest, most famous yeah, song, yeah, yeah, yeah. was not necessarily a big chart hit on the chart.
were you guys trying were you guys thinking why are we not cracking america or were you just in such a machine by that point you weren't really thinking in those terms well, I mean, I don't know really. I mean, it seemed like we had, or we were. Okay. I mean, but because well, I guess we if you're were playing Madison Square Garden. You're yeah, you know, we had. There. I mean, it was rather territorial. We were doing extremely well on the on the East Coast, you know, in Boston and New York and and Washington and all, and all down the East Coast. We were selling out sort of huge places. On the on the West Coast, it wasn't quite so sort of powerful, but we were certainly getting noticed. The Midwest was still a. We, we hadn't really done a great deal of. Although we played there a lot, and we were certainly getting a response. It wasn't to the extent that we were on the East Coast. So, yeah. Okay. So I don't think I don't think we would have thought, or I thought, that we'd cracked America in total. But we certainly made a dent. You know, we certainly yeah, got. Yeah. Um, okay. But it, but it wasn't as you're right. You're right to say that we never really did have any big hits in, in America. It was really through live work, playing live, and getting a lot of college radio play, and, mm-hmm. and gradually those regular plays on college radio of these yeah. songs of Footprints and Tempted and Pulling Muscles yeah. and these songs got played so often that they became part of the sort of American consciousness. Yeah. So now people yeah. recognise them and and they have become part of sort of American pop history if you see what i mean yeah. like yeah. they are accepted as being part of the the culture now the the english culture in america but You're they right. never were hits it's very odd right. you know they never were hits yeah. but they've sort of become established so i don't know it's a bizarre thing really who knows i don't yeah. know mate. You know. You're right. That you know, I was just thinking that singles forty five and under album it, it features all the hits, quote unquote, like we were just saying, that weren't actually giant hits on the radio. But that album, like millions of people own that album. Yeah. You know, know, it's almost like a part of any music fan has that C D in their collection, whether yeah. they heard those songs on the radio the first time around or not. Yeah. You're so yeah, okay. Well I think um, also I think also we became quite a sort of hit band to like yeah you know if yeah. we were almost like a secret but then the secret yeah, got so widespread that it wasn't a secret anymore yeah um it's a bit like wearing a black suit and a black tie and a black shirt you know you're going to fit in and you're safe but you still can look a bit edgy <laughs> and that's a bit like having a squeeze album it's yeah. safe but it is a yep. little bit edgy <laughs> that's true very good that's perfect yes you're right you're right okay so Babylon and On comes out in 87, 30 years ago this year, by the way. And oh, that one yeah. finally does start to break you guys out. You know, I've been listening to it a lot more lately because I knew I was going to talk to you. And the production is a little bigger on there, maybe a little uh, brighter or louder or something. But yeah, I was curious, yeah. was it a calculated decision for your record label at that point to say, it is time to break squeeze in America. We're going to go all in on Babylon and On. And on this track, Hourglass, we think we have a hit here. Or did it happen organically? Or what was the planning? Do you remember at all? Yeah, well, uh, Babylon and On was the first album we, we recorded after our reformation, when we true, got back together. Yeah. And, um, and, and we had a producer on there. We had Laurie Latham who produced it. And uh, Laurie uh, had got a really good track record. Uh, he'd had big hits with Paul Young and Fine Young Cannibals and, and Ian Dury. Yeah, and um, so, I mean, he, he had a lot of experience. 
and he also knew how to work a recording studio. He understood, you know. So okay. So I think that is part of the polish and part of the grandiosity, if that's the right word, or the, or the bigness of the Babylon and on album, was Laurie Latham's input, and okay. and also what had happened uh, was Glenn took more of a back seat. You know, the, the band reformed and it was going to be, we're going to get back to the old days and we're all going to sort of chip in and we're going to do this together and we're all going to be okay. team players and it's going to be lovely, you know. And yeah. so, and and that's what happened. So, it, so Laurie had much more of an influence on that album than the ones previous before the breakup where it really was squeezed producing squeeze you know i mean obviously we had john wood played a key role uh, but he was a very simple not simple is a wrong word very uncomplicated type producer he used to let the songs just breathe and and let them sort of be their own vehicle and then of course we worked with elvis costello who produced east side story probably our best album i don't know but that's just my humble opinion yeah Um, a lot of people feel that way Unscrews the top of a new whiskey bottle and shuffles about in her candlelit hovel like some kind of witch with blue fingers and mittens. She smells like the cat and the neighbors she sickens. The black and white TV has long seen a picture. The cross on the wall is a permanent fixture. Postman delivers the final reminders. She sells off her silver and poodles in China. Drinks to remember I, me, and myself. And winds up the clock and knocks dust from the shelf. Home is a love that I miss very much. So the past has been bottled and labeled with love. So he had a, a big role to play in that, but it was also a meeting of minds between uh, Elvis Costello and, and, and Squeeze. You know, it was a joint yeah. effort, really. But uh, with uh, with Babylon and on, it really was Laurie. Laurie produced that record. You okay. know, he, he definitely produced it, which is why it sounded different. You know, the the following yeah. record, Play, was once again sort of back to sort of Glenn being rather yeah. demanding okay. again, you know. So, anyway. I, uh, actually, uh, uh, Babylon and Play was Frank, which it was an underperforming, I think, follow-up to Babylon, which had sort of, you know, broken you guys through a little bit. I really loved the, the single, If It's Love,
I remember not loving the whole album back in the day, but I love it yeah. a lot now. Yeah. And then Play is, I think, one of maybe the, that one might be one of the last really great Squeeze albums. And you're on that one, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That Jewel was my last book. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I don't. I hope this isn't too sensitive. Did you leave on your own? Were you asked? No, no, no. I was kicked out again. No, I've been sacked really? twice. No, I was sacked twice. Oh boy. And and it was because I'd started drinking again. I've been sober for uh, ten years, and uh, my marriage that that marriage had got broken, washed up on the rocks, and and I was in a pretty yeah. emotional bad way. And uh, I decided to pick up a drink, which was a crazy thing to do. And this is thirty years ago now, so I can sure. sort of speak speak about it without too much angst. And I picked right. up a drink again, and this is after 10 years of not drinking, so it was quite a crash. And yeah. uh, we did an American tour, and I was drinking all the way through that. And then and then when we got back after that tour, uh, they had a band meeting and sacked me. And that was so, oh, I was sacked goodness. twice. <laughs> goodness. <laughs> well, wow. Both times when I was a drunk, which is, oh, it, it's, it's quite a hard pill to swallow, you know. Where are your yeah. mates when, you, when you're on the floor, you know? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> they come and oh, give you a good kicking, you know. But anyway, so I retired. The plan was actually uh, that um, that second time, you know, I was I felt like I'd, I'd blown it completely. They kicked me out, and I was okay. once again penniless, no money, no nothing. Oh man! And so I moved up to Lincolnshire, which is where I'm speaking to you from now, and I bought a derelict okay. cottage. And it really was a derelict cottage. It, you know, it's all I could afford. It, it was no floors, no roof, no derelicts. You know. Wow. And, and I bought this cottage, and I was going to just renovate this cottage and maybe give a few drum lessons, and that was me. I'd had enough. But um, after a, a couple of months of doing this and feeling rather sorry for myself, Julian, Jules, phoned me up and says, Hello, Gilson. Uh, do you want to come and do a show? <laughs> Uh, uh, oh, and I didn't want to. Oh, I can't do this, mate. I've got retired. I've finished, and he, he uh -huh. was determined. So uh, in the end, I I agreed, and I went down to London and played this sort of one-off show as a duo, piano and drums, doing uh -huh. sort of boogie-woogie stuff. And then he booked another show, and then another show, and then oh. and I and I'd stopped drinking again now, so I'd, okay. I'd quit again, so I was sober again. And then a bass player turned up, and then a, a guitarist turned up, and then it gradually grew into a 22-piece rhythm and blues orchestra that is filling stadiums, and, and I started, I never did retire. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, that's so, great, though. 
It would oh, be no, sad no, to have no, someone no. like you not out there, you know, bringing <laughs> it to the world. I'm serious. I mean, I couldn't imagine a world without Gilson Levis out there making music. Well, well aren't you kind? But uh, so, you know, I've had a real rocky old up and down sort of career, mate. I've been, you know, Madison Square Garden. A year later, I was driving a minicab in South London, you know. Yeah, and then wow. uh, another couple of years after that, back on tour with Squeezed, selling out sort of enormous yeah. domes around the world. And then crash again, yeah. living in a derelict cottage in Lincolnshire. With Fascinating. <laughs> wow. And, then, and now, and now, of course, I'm, I'm, we're touring the world and I'm, I'm playing regular TV specials. I'm performing with yeah. all sorts of people, all, you know. I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm in a, I've been an incredibly lucky bunny, mate, I tell you. I, I can't believe Good. it. I've, I've had three careers and I'm still going. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about how this, uh, the, Jules Hall and Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, I believe, right? Are you employed by the BBC? Do you just play? What do you do? What's the nature of your job now? Are you no, 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 no. Um, do you perform? Okay. No, no. Uh, although I work for the BBC a lot, you know. I mean, we do we do loads of work for the BBC, the New okay. Year's Eve specials, and, and, oh, you know, it's loads of work, yeah, but um, okay. loads of TV work. But, no, I'm self-employed, and I work for Julian, really, Jules. He is the governor. Okay. He runs okay. the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, uh-huh. and uh, and I work regularly. Well, that's really all I do. I work in the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, and we do okay. we do about eighty to a hundred live shows a year, and we do oh, um, we also uh, the rhythm section with Jules, myself, and Dave on bass, and a couple of the brass players. We do a radio show on Radio Two, which is, goes out twice a uh, two series a year, uh-huh. which is playing and interviewing and chatting on the radio. Uh, okay. And that's BBC work. And then, uh, of course, recording. We make an album every year. And we've just had it made a, a, a an album with Jose Feliciano, of all people. Oh, way, uh, really? Yeah, absolutely. He's come wow. in and guested. So we've done an album with Jose, with the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra. And, um, that's amazing. And so I just keep working, you know. Yeah. And now I've got another string to my bow, which is I'm a painter now. and I'm Yes, I'm, okay, that's what I want to ask you about now. Because I yeah. just found your Facebook page. I think your website is down. In case yeah, I've taken it off. There's it. a reason for that. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute, but yeah. Okay. Go. But you're, it, you're, the, the portraits that you draw and you paint, I, I mean, I only see what you have on the Facebook page. It's awesome. Well, thank so, you. How did thank you get into this? Yes. Well, well, when I was at school, way, way back, I mean, I left school at 15 years old and, and went off to be a drummer. But I, I was always able to draw, I mean, and sketch. You know, it was one of those uh-huh. things I could just do. You know, I was that kid in the class that could oh, sort of yeah. draw a pair of tits and make it sexy, you know. Yeah, and, um, yeah. <laughs> and it was either going to be art or music. Well, you know, I thought, oh, no, music's the way forward, really, for me. Certainly more girls. It never did uh-huh. work out actually with the girls, but um, uh, <laughs> but uh, and so I got into music and I didn't follow up with art. So I didn't uh, pick up a pen or a, or a paintbrush for decades, for years and years and years. But about eight years, no more than that, nine years ago now maybe, um, I was out in Budapest and I was having all my teeth fixed because hmm. uh, living the life I have, which is you know. A, quite a few years being a drunk and then mm-hmm. also you know it's very rare you see a drunk with a nice set of teeth you know so um <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so 
<laughs> so, you know, although they look presentable, they were, I was getting lots of bother from, you know, it's all barbell stuff from way back uh-huh. when, when I was a bit of a scallywag, you know. So um, yeah. uh, I went out to Budapest to have them fixed because it's a lot cheaper to have them done in Budapest than it is in England. It, it, it's about a third of the price. And, I've, okay. and I had the whole kit and caboodle, you know, implants yeah. throughout my whole mouth, the whole thing, you know. Oh, wow. So, well, it was necessary, and also I can smile sure. now and, and not be ashamed. So, um, actually, they're not New York teeth. They don't glisten in the dark or anything. They look like proper teeth, you know. <laughs> they look normal. <laughs> they look normal. <laughs> anyway, they look, yeah, they look normal. But, um, uh, <laughs> but while I was out there, uh, I'd rented this flat off the, uh, off the Internet, you know, that uh-huh. looked quite nice. Because I was out there for a week. They take all your teeth out, and then you have to wait for that to heal up a bit, and then they fix them. Anyway, it's a long story. I was yeah. out there for a week, and I rented this flat, and when I got there, it was appalling. You know, I'd really been really? conned, you know. It was a real dreadful shithole, uh-huh. you know. it was. Yeah. There was no heating, there was no hot water, and there was no... And it was in the real run-down part of Budapest, and... And and I don't drink. I didn't drink or do any of that uh-huh. stuff. So sure. and I was sat in this miserable little little flat for for a week, with nothing to do but feel sorry for myself, you know. Yeah. But what I did have with me, I did have a a, a bit of paper and a pen, and what I did was mm. just because I had nothing else to do, I did a sketch of our tour manager, and I did a sketch of my wife actually, just uh-huh. a sketch, just a thumbnail sketch, you know, just sure. just decided to do and I thought I thought they looked alright actually that looks pretty yeah. good so when I came back I put them both in a frame just for the hell of it and I gave it to the tour manager and he was absolutely thrilled to bits he said I can't believe good. you didn't do it I said I did that yeah and he was so excited that I think and, and I really enjoyed that sort of approval and having that yeah. sort of sort of somebody slapping you on the back and saying that's fantastic what right. I did was, on that next tour, I sketched the whole band, one at a time, then their wives, then their dogs, and then their girlfriend. I just went, oh, oh wow. And I sketched everybody, and I couldn't stop once I started. Uh, and I was just sketching and sketching and sketching and sketching. Uh-huh. And then I got a bit bored with sketching, so I thought I'd, get a, I'd try a bit of painting. So then I, I transferred my sketching to painting, and I, then I started to paint. But I painted a cross between sketches and painting, which is okay. why I paint in black and white, really. It's, I really enjoy that. Um, and, and, and it's gone from strength to strength. I've had yeah. three or four, well, I've had about five exhibitions now in London and around the country. I've got one opening in New York in September, which I'm thrilled to bits about. You know, in the In the, uh, the Salomon's Gallery uh, uh, in, um, in, in, in New Excellent. York, which is yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic, you know. That's amazing. So, um, now, I think yeah. on your on your Facebook page, are you selling some of these sketches? Did I uh, see yeah, that? Yeah, I did. Well, you know, I, I, I've been, I went through, it was when we'd stopped the, because uh, the, we have, usually have a break, usually about January and February and March. We don't do many touring. I do radio shows and other things. Uh-huh. It's quite a bit of hanging about time, you know, so, okay. so that's my quiet time. And, um, so what I'd do, just for the hell of it, I'd sit in my armchair, which is where I'm talking to you from now. I'd sit uh-huh. in my armchair, and I'd sit here for an evening, and I'd do a sketch. And then I'd think, well, you know, what? I don't want this. I mean, it's a lovely sketch, but, I mean, you know, I can't just keep sticking them <laughs> under my bed, you know. 
<laughs> but I don't. I, I don't really want to sort of start selling them for loads of money because it's you know it's only taken me a couple of hours, you know. <laughs> mm. So well. I, I, I was sticking them on my Facebook page and and charging the sort of minimum I could charge without sort of just giving yeah. them away. Well, and the thing is, I, I could give them away for free, but that would feed a, a oh. an insatiable beast. You know, exactly. uh, you know, I couldn't because uh, you know everybody want one then. So I had to put well, some sort of price on it. So I, I put okay. hundred pounds on each one, and and every time I did one, it sold. It just flew it flew out, you know. So, but I've sort of can stopped regular doing... people buy these? Cause can yeah, I buy just, one? Just, yeah, just anybody okay. can buy them. This stuff, this stuff is great. And you, why wouldn't you want to sell it? I mean, I, as a huge fan of yours, I would love to have a sketch on my wall of somebody <laughs> that you did that says Gilson Levis on it. I would love that, you know? Well, well so keep your eye out, mate, because I'm like, in fact, you were talking about the website. There's a chap, a good friend of mine who lives in New York called James, James Slyman, who, who has helped me get sort of this, uh, this exhibition out in uh, the Salomon's Gallery. And they wanted me to take down my, any, any sort of thing I was selling online or, or mm. my website because, of course, you know, they, they're going to be charging gallery prices, you know. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, they, and they don't want my sketches going for sale for £100, you oh, know, when, of course. when, you know, I'll have, I think I'll probably have 20 or something sketches in the exhibition along with the paintings. And, you okay. know, they'll be charging a lot more mm. than £100. So... Do you see what I mean? So I, I, yes, I had to stop. I had to stop doing it, really. Um, yeah. Although I might start again after the exhibition finishes, I'll probably yeah. do it just for the hell okay. of it because cool. it's fun. <laughs> I believe it, of course. I mean, you put something out into the world, and then you see people saying, "I'll take that. I'll take that," and you hear from, that's the best feeling in the world. You yeah, know? absolutely. Your you know, creativity it's, gets yeah, and, it, and it's it is just I just sit here in my armchair and do sure. a sketch, you know, and I yeah. sit here and I think. Who shall I sketch now? I know I'll do one of, and then I'll do a sketch of him. Yeah, good. <laughs> I'm gonna buy one. Back to the music, just for a second. What is the state of squeeze of your relationship? I mean, the guys, Chris and Glenn, put out, I think, honestly, one of their strongest albums. Just was it last year or the year before? Cradle yeah. to the Grave. It's so yeah. good. They say time is of the essence. They say time. Stopping everybody from doing it again? Is it just everyone's too busy? Is there bad vibes? What what stands in the way? Well, well, for a start, Julian wouldn't be interested at all. Okay. I mean, why would he? I mean, he's a, much, yeah, he's he's a music icon over it. Yeah. You know, he's, I mean, he yeah. is. Yeah. He is musical royalty now. You know, he has his yeah. own TV show. It's been running twenty years, and 
yeah. and um, he's you know he's been awarded an MBE. He'll be a, a, a he'll be a sir soon, I should think. You know, he really is. He's he's done incredibly well for himself. So he doesn't yeah. need it. Uh, yeah. And I doubt if he wants it either. Although probably if somebody ever was, was ever to wave a big check at him, I'm sure he'd think sure. about it. And I go where Julian goes. I go, you know if Jules so. I wouldn't be doing it unless Jules did it, and then I then I'd do it. You know, I probably would. But, um, but okay. so so I'm sort of tied to Jules as yeah. he's sort of my boss, although I'm self-employed. I yeah. work for him, so that's that's our end of it. And Chris okay. and Glenn, I, I don't think they would um, be interested in doing it because them it, to them it might well seem like a backward step, really. You know, yeah, so maybe. okay. You know, look, we you know we've got a solo career and. Yeah, and it, it might be sort of saying, "Well, it didn't work out. We're going to go back to this," you know. So yeah, okay. No, so I don't know. And, uh, I mean, I'm I'm speaking for people that sure. I've got no idea I've got any right to speak for, but I don't are think you it's ever... friendly with them. I mean, you say Chris is coming to perform with the orchestra soon. Are you yeah. okay with Glenn? Are you guys? Yeah, well, well, I, I I never see Glenn really. I mean, um, oh, okay. Very, I think once I've seen him a couple of times in the last sort of ten, fifteen years. Our paths don't cross. But Chris does has you know he has come and guested with us before and he okay so you know I'm friends with Chris you know there was sure. no problem there really you know okay but but I I couldn't tell you how I am with Glenn I've no idea really um, okay I I know how relationship was quite strained in the days of Squeeze because yeah. because of his desire to have things the way he thought they should be who's to say he yeah. was wrong and yeah. and my, my need for creativity and to be part of something so i think there was a bit of conflict there but it's all water under the bridge now john yeah. right? who cares okay you know? okay you know? true everyone's gone on and everyone's okay yeah, and... yeah we're all yeah. right really okay know. good good okay um if you don't mind i want to ask you about some of your collaborations because you've played with a lot of really interesting people for instance yeah okay. you um partnered up with graham parker on the real macaw album at one point i did um, yes yeah there because I think if I remember correctly he had decided to kind of move away from the rumor and it wasn't maybe it wasn't working out or something and so he kind of brought in a a really great rock band to play with him what was the story there 
Well, I don't know. I just got a call to come and play with Graham. Oh, really? And, and, and it was it was a great thing, actually. You know, unfortunately, I don't think, although I was playing very pretty well and very solid at the time, um, I think I was suffering a bit from the effects of working with Glenn. Glenn, mm. for for quite a long period at the end of Squeeze, he was very anti sort of any drum fills or anything complicated on a kit or anything that was out of sort of just playing basic backbeats. He was going through this phase of not wanting anything flowery. And okay. I felt quite intimidated by that, and it was quite um, musically castrating. And I think I took that into that album with um, with Graham, you know, and which was unfortunate. Yeah. I think I could have done a lot more, but I was still a bit intimidated, and I've been okay. sort of painted into an emotional box a bit. Allowed myself, yeah. I mean... It's not old Glenn. You see, it's a yeah, two-way street. Sure. He sure. pushed me that way, and I retreated. You know, had I been healthier, I might have stood my ground a bit more, but I didn't. So, you know, it's a two-way problem. You see what I mean? It's not just that. Yeah, so, okay. And, I, and okay. I think that album with Graham, I was suffering a bit from that. Uh, the drum mm. parts are a bit unimaginative. Having said that, they are very solid, and they really groove. I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. quite pr- I'm quite proud of that album, you know. So, Good. Uh, I did Good. play well on it, just not particularly imaginatively, you know. Okay, but, um, okay. There we go. Did you tour with him? He's somebody that I've always felt like deserved more. Yeah, same here, same here. Know? No, I never I never did tour with him. No, I just did the okay. album, and that was that. Really. Okay, okay. Um, now, you were involved a little bit with Amy Winehouse, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I had a privilege of working with Amy in the early days of her career when she came in and played on, uh, and performed on, on, a, on a Hoot Nanny, uh, which is our, our New Year's Eve special that it's on BBC. Okay. goes out over the new year it's like it starts at 11 o'clock one year and then goes right the way through to half past two the following day so we're do you see what i mean we sort of do yeah. the new year's eve countdown and uh-huh. all that it's a real big musical sort of thing that i've, I've been playing that now for 25 years actually a long wow. long time uh, yeah. all sorts of people have been on that and amy was one of the people that came on and then she did other things with us she came and did a a live show, and then another TV special we did with her. And it was fantastic, remarkable voice. One of the few, uh, it's happened a couple of times, uh, and Amy was one of them, um, uh, where at the rehearsals, when we're doing a very minimum rehearsal, it's all BBC, cut to the bone, you know, but but Uh so we're all set up on the sound stage, and Amy turned up and and ran this song with us, 
and everybody, everybody, apart from the musicians, of course, everybody in the uh, in the studio stopped. No cameras moved, no lights moved, no sound men moved. They just stood transfixed by the performance of this incredible lady. Yeah. And I've already seen that happen a couple of times, and that was one of them when Amy wow. opened her voice and, and sang like that. It yeah. was just just astounding. Just what a, it really what a was. talent. Just unbelievable yeah. talent. Unbelievable. I think um, you know that the document. You may have seen that documentary that came out a year or two ago on her. It's one of the best music documentaries I've ever seen because yeah, yeah. I think in this, you know, we only really, especially in the states, probably we only saw her once things started getting bad. We yeah. didn't have a concept of who she was before that, and so I think it's you know it, it became easy for some people to just write her off as sort of a mess, yeah, without really considering what an artist she was, and that we were seeing her at the end of a very tragic downward spiral. Yeah, I know, you know, I know, I know. It wasn't always like that. No, and it wasn't. Much it was deeper it artist than you would have thought. Yeah. She was she was astounding. She was. It is. Yeah, I, I worked with her a few times, and I and I was a witness to the to the decline. Really, I'm ashamed yeah. to say, and and it was painful to watch. But those early years, those early years, there was something that was just magical about her, her singing. Yeah. That you know, I don't think we've seen that seen the like for decades. You know, we're no. talking about um, there with the all-time greats vocalists, you know, yeah. all-time yeah. greats, Lena Horne, that sort yeah. of quality, you know, yeah. real just majestic, yeah. majestic quality, you know, it's just yeah, such, I agree. Such, a, such a terrible waste. I agree. Okay, um, and then lastly, you know, you came up during that late 70s, early 80s period in British alternative rock, which is my probably my very favorite period of music. Bands like the, the Smiths and uh, Echo and the Bunny Men. And, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I don't yeah. know if you interacted much with these guys, Adam Ant. I mean, were you guys playing on bills with these guys? Were you hot? Yeah, absolutely. With them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We were. I mean, but uh, but it was all an incredibly chaotic period. You know, I mean, it was all sure. crazy. You know, uh, um, in fact, I worked with Adam uh, since then. He's, you know, he had a, he did come back and do do a few shows, and uh, and he came uh-huh. and did a TV thing. He's had his own demons as well. God bless him. But, sure, um, he has. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, we don't live in each other's pockets. I mean, I don't see these people. But occasionally, you know, they turn up, uh, they might come and be guests on the radio show, and it's, oh, Gilson, Gilson, (laughs) do you remember? I saw you here, I saw you at the K52 Club, or, you know, somewhere in New York, or I saw you here, and, oh, I haven't seen you for 30 years. (laughs) Right. So, you know, that happens. The the ones that are still walking and talking. Sure, sure. I didn't know how uh, close you may have been to any of those guys. If you became friendly with like Ian McCullough or Dave Gahan or something like that, uh, I, no, I don't no, see it, but no, I was wondering. No, no, not really. And and sort of, and I'm I'm still a working Joe drummer, you know. And a, true, a lot of these true. guys, you know, are, are either quit or they're doing other things or they're into production yeah. or they're. Yeah. So I mean, if they're on the circuit, I'm still working the circuit, mate. I'm still. Sure. <laughs> You sure still, are, yeah. you know. So, um, so no, I, I don't really see many of these people. Okay. But I mean, they do okay. turn up. I mean, I don't know if you there was a a, a chap that, uh, called John Cooper Clark who was a oh sure who, yeah yeah, yeah he t- he turned up at the at the radio station a few weeks ago and it was fantastic seeing John. You know, big hugs Good. and stuff. 
And we used to work together quite a lot. He'd, he'd be the support on a squeeze gig down the marquee or something, you know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and these people, cool. yeah, so so they do turn up, you know. We we do okay. see each Okay. But Woody, of course, one. Woody Woody Woodmansey from uh, Spiders from Mars. He was down playing yeah. my kit the other day, and it was what? great to see Woody. You know, he was uh, chatting with oh, him about what, you know. So you know, oh, yeah, man. yeah, we do. Yeah, our paths wow. still cross now and again. You know. So. Oh, that's great. Okay, last question. When you look back over your career and you've done so much, do you have a favorite memory? Whether it be um, playing with someone that you love, or hearing your song on the radio, or maybe selling your artwork or whatever, do you have a favorite memory that when you sit in the chair, your favorite chair that you're in now, and yeah, chair, yeah. <laughs> do you ever think I can't believe that happened to me? Well, yes. Uh, well, there are three things. Okay. One of them is is walking out on stage at Madison Square Garden. And seeing that huge crowd, mm. and seeing people holding up a banner with Gilson on it, and I yeah. could not, I could not oh, quite oh, believe yeah. that. That's just <laughs> my God! How did I get here? You know. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's one of them. Uh, that's a real fond memory. Even though I wasn't particularly well at the time, I still remember that. My God, yeah. I was playing. I was playing drums well, though. I mean, I might, I might yeah, have been a. You sure I might have been a drunk most of the day, but my God, I was playing well in those days. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, another time would be uh, I had the privilege of being the drummer at uh, the Millennium uh, on the Millennium celebrations at the Millennium Dome in in London, which got beamed around the world to billions of people, and mm. uh, where I performed with uh, endless people all night long. I was playing with these people in front of Her Majesty the Queen, and and just 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 the pinnacle of anybody's career to be the only sure. drummer on stage in front of those. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people playing yeah. with an endless stream of just fantastic musicians oh, and artists all night long. So many. I mean, I can't even remember now. They were just one yeah. after the other I was playing for. But um, in in the days of Jules, there is a magical moment that I still have to pinch myself. Was I, I was playing um, on a TV show uh, later with Jules, and I was mm-hmm. asked to come in and play... Uh, sit in with a with a band that was playing for Smokey Robinson, and oh. I and I was uh, and I sat there and and the band was this, it was Smokey Robinson on vocals, me on drums, Jules on piano, Dave from the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra on bass, and Eric Clapton on guitar. Oh man. I remember sitting there playing, thinking, my God, how did I get yes. here? You know. Yes. Yes. This yes. is just. And we did well, a couple of real classic smoky tracks, and it was just, oh, thank you, God. That's you know. great. Great. Well, I want you to know, Gilson, if I had been in that room, I would have been looking at you behind the <laughs> drum kit, and I would be thinking, how did I get here? Because oh, that's <laughs> more than, I'm, I'm not kidding, more than Smokey, I love Smokey Robinson and Eric Clapton, but I would have been more amazed at being in your presence than either of those two people and uh, so I just want to thank you for all the goodness you've put in this world. You're the man. You're behind so much music that has made some people's lives better, including mine. And I just want to thank you for all that you've done because you're you've you've made the world a better place for millions of people. So you are such you a kind that. man. You're such a kind man, and thank you so much. And I I hope I've given you some, something to work with. Oh, you so know. many things. Right. Yeah, so okay. many things. I could talk to you for days. You have no oh. idea, but I'm so oh, grateful. Right, 
Anyway, I keep your eye, keep your eye out. Mate, you never know. This art exhibition might might get might spread round America. Who knows? More than squeezed it. So oh, you I, never know. I would love it. I will try. Uh, maybe I'll try and get there. There you have it, Gilson Labus. Woo! I got a little misty there at the end. A little choked up. Squeeze has brought so much happiness to my life. I can't believe I just talked to him. That was amazing. That meant a lot to me. I hope hope you guys got something out of it too. I mean, who doesn't love Squeeze? Uh, huge honor. Uh, also, if you want to, I look for Gilson Lavis Art on Facebook and like the page. He updates it periodically with some of the some of his latest sketches. They're really great, and they're of, most of them are of rock stars. So I I love it. I hope you'll love it too. Next week's guest, I got to put in a little plug. If you like Squeeze, you probably love this band too. Forged a very similar path. Late 70s, British, sort of punky, becomes more of a pop group. It lasts throughout the 80s, ends probably around the same time that uh, Squeeze does too. These guys are legends too. A little quirkier than Squeeze, but legends nonetheless. So I hope you'll come back for that. I'm really excited for this one as well. Another British gentleman. Uh, now, I want to close it out with probably my second favorite Squeeze song called uh, No Place Like Home. I honestly don't know how much Gilson plays on this. There's not a ton of percussion, and what there is is great, but, you know, it's the early 80s, this might be a synthesizer or a drum machine. I have no idea. But if it's him, he sounds great. Either way, it's an excellent song. So I wanted to close it out with that. Now, the business, as always, you can like our page on Facebook. You can communicate with us on there. That's where I do most of the communicating. I'm on. I'm trying to get more into Twitter as you guys are sort of bringing me in there, at the Hustle Pod. I wouldn't say it's my primary form of communication. Facebook is. And then you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Let me know if there's somebody out there you'd like me to get on the show for you. I'm working on a bunch of those right now for you guys. Uh, and if you haven't already, just go into iTunes and like the page or uh, write us a quick review, whatever it might be. Subscribe, please. We try to bring you these interesting stories every week. Hopefully we're doing a good job. And when I say we, I'm talking, of course of the right-hand man, Yan the Man Makevich. I am especially grateful for Yan these days, guys. Give him an even bigger thank you. He is gallivanting around Europe with his son right now, and he's putting these episodes together while he's out like in a foreign country, seeing the sights. So I am so grateful for him more than ever before. Anyway, guys, we will see you next Tuesday with another episode I know you're going to enjoy. We'll talk to you then.